Okay, so I am on my way to talk with Bill Hodgman, one of the district attorneys who prosecuted my brother's case. He was at the criminal courts building downtown LA. Oh my gosh, I haven't been here in for so long. Oh, my heart's starting to race there. There it is. All right, we can do this. We got this, let's go. <laughs> I'm with Kim Golden and we're doing a, a podcast okay. in connection with the uh, the case, <laughs> yes. What, the what case? The case. Oh, oh the case. case. It, it doesn't need much more description. No, it doesn't. No. Yeah. Now, can we get to nine? Here, you want me? I'll get you guys on the plate. Okay, cool. Oh, thank you. So it was that way? This was it. Well, yeah, here's 103, right here. This yeah. is it. Yeah. This is weird. Mm. When we would come up from the parking lot, the district attorney investigators would pick us up at a separate location and then shuttle us in to this building so that we didn't have to come in any of the main entrances. And then we'd come up through those elevators and then basically hide away from media. And then they would hover. They would hover in the bathrooms, like I'd have to check the bathroom stalls. Oh, sure. And then we would just sit here and wait, all the while people just staring and just looking for any possible thing they could find, a, a reaction, a facial expression. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's a little weird. Yeah, it's okay, yeah. the benches are the same. It feels bigger than I remember. Um, I feel like before it was felt more um, enclosed and maybe because emotionally I felt like trapped. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, um, but after the verdict, the hallway was jam packed. And when we came out, it was like you could hear a pin drop. Not one person spoke when we came out. The whole group of people out here, the hallway separated and they let all of us walk through. And we just marched into the elevator. Um, and then as soon as the doors closed, I remember the Brown family mm -hmm. talking about that, that he, gets to, he, got to, he gets to sow his wild oats now that he's out of jail. It's crazy. I think I was holding Marsha at one point and then later going to our war room yeah. area. Yeah and our law clerks were crying. Right. They were just shattered, devastated. It's weird that this is, this is it right there, 103. That's mm -hmm. crazy. Yeah, a lot of ghosts in these hallways. Yeah. This is Confronting O.J. Simpson. I'm your host, Kim Goldman. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? 
Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. When O.J. Simpson surrendered to police after the Bronco chase, the Los Angeles DA team knew they had to move fast. O.J. was one of the biggest celebrities on the planet, and now he sat in their jail awaiting his right to a speedy trial. District Attorney Gil Garcetti appointed his team, naming Marsha Clark as lead prosecutor on the trial and Deputy District Attorney Bill Hodgman to oversee the case the people were building against O.J. Simpson. As the trial started, Bill had to step back after experiencing a health scare. This opened the door for Chris Darden. Darden intimately knew the case and was a perfect fit to replace Bill when he fell ill. Hodgman stayed active on the team throughout the trial, while Chris sat second chair with Marsha as the trial of the century unfolded. Chris will forever be known for having O.J. try on the glove found on the murder scene in court, prompting the ever-famous slogan, If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. On this episode, Kim confronts both men to understand just how the DA's office planned to convict Simpson and where things went so terribly wrong. You were there from the original, you were the, the, the guy in charge, right? Or was it Marsha? At the time, I had general oversight over the case. Marsha was the lead trial lawyer out of the box. Right. She and a colleague from the special trials unit were presenting to the grand jury. Bill Hodgman had a good reputation in the L.A. prosecutor's office. He was a quiet, solid presence on the team who helped early on with the case and with jury selection. And he was constant support for the Goldmans throughout the trial. And then extraordinarily, we had to recuse the grand jury due to grand juror misconduct. I don't we, know that I remember that. What happened? Well, this is this is part of the, the backstory to the case. Grand jurors were heard by various sheriff's deputies and bailiffs discussing matters outside the evidence that was being presented to it. Oh. Now the grand jury is blown up, and then it became just like slipping into a black hole because <laughs> Marsha and I, we were inundated with motions. Right. We worked crazy hours just to stay on top of things. And, uh, you know, adroitly, Bob Shapiro, who was in charge of the defense initially, you know, uh, did his best to try to overwhelm us. And strategically, something he did, which was somewhat unexpected, was he did not waive time for trial. And you have to go to trial earlier than you may be prepared to? Yeah. Off we went. And it was at that point that we really felt the pressure. Do you think that that put the prosecutors at a disadvantage because you didn't have time to cultivate all the witnesses and all the evidence? Certainly. Um, what saved us 
in this case was the length of jury selection. They, they caught us flat-footed a little bit in the beginning, but as we got our team built and we got the, the processes churning to get the evidence analyzed, we were ready to go to trial. Hodgman had dealt with high-profile cases throughout his career, including Death Row Records founder Suge Knight's murder trial and Michael Jackson's molestation trial. But those cases didn't compare to the crazy stress of the trial of the century. Hours after the opening statements in the O.J. Simpson case, Hodgman was taken to the hospital with chest pains. An EKG showed an irregular heartbeat, apparently due to stress. Well, following that incident, Chris Darden took a bigger role with Marsha Clark in the courtroom. Bill remained involved as a supervisor on the case. Chris Darden wasn't part of that in those early stages, right? Chris Darden was part of a team that was looking at whether Al Callings could be criminally liable as an aider and a better. He was the one driving the Bronco during the chase with Simpson in the backseat. Why wasn't he charged? We did not have sufficient evidence to charge A.C. Callings. Mm -hmm. So at that point, Chris could step right in because he had already gotten up to speed with the case. He knew the witnesses and he knew the issues. And the perception was that the reason that you guys brought him on was because he was black. Mm -hmm. And we knew that would be a perception. But Chris was adept at building cases. Five months from the night Simpson was arrested, a jury was finally chosen. Starting on September 24, 1994, 250 potential jurors were presented in front of Judge Ito at the L.A. courthouse. And there was a lot of crazy going on. One potential juror showed up in a Star Trek uniform. She didn't make the cut. By November 3rd, 12 jurors and 15 alternates had been selected. But it took another month before the jury was seated. You called me and I said, what do you think? And you said, well... We got the best of what we were offered. All that is to say we were not pleased yeah. with the jury. There was hostility towards us throughout the jury selection process. What was the hostility from? I felt the jurors did not relate to Marcia. Yeah. I think they were at times kind of mystified by Chris. Sometimes Chris gave off a manner of... Aloof. Yeah, a brooding, aloof, and then I think they were just, what's going on with this guy? Yeah. I've talked to a couple of people along the way in this process, and they all have mentioned how hostile it felt when they walked in. When we would come in, when Marsha and Chris would come in, the jurors would be, you know, look the other way, and they'd be very busy and, like, can't be bothered. And then the defense would walk in, and, you know, they'd all sit up in their seat and they were very much like the student in the front of the room with their notebooks ready to go. What do you think Ito's role was in chaos that went on? At the beginning of the Simpson case, Judge Ito gathered all of his counsel, but he said, you know, I'm aware of your reputations and I expect this case to be tried at a very high level. I think he felt there was a goodness amongst the participants and that people would stay in line and almost immediately they went into the gutter. It was a dog fight. It was a, a fight in an alley behind a bar at 2 a.m. with broken beer bottles. It was chaos. Well, I'm sorry, one point, I'm one sorry. point what is on the Oh, list? yeah, that's right, okay, you're right, you're right. Okay, wait, I guess wait, we have all possible. Wait, 
You can't Sorry. talk at the same time. When I say wait, everybody stops, including you, Dr. Cotton, including you, Mr. Neufeld. Proceed. Why do you think that he was so incapable or unwilling or hesitant to keep a lid on things? Perhaps it was a sense of trying to be eminently fair or the appearance of being eminently fair as we were on a national media stage. Mm -hmm. And perhaps he was hopeful that, you know, the jury would do the right thing and that would be the outcome. But again, that case was an extraordinary case, Kim. I do harbor a little bit, a lot of bit of resentment towards Furman. I just feel like that was kind of what sealed the deal. Remember Mark Furman? He was accused of being a dirty cop and a racist. And then he took the fifth on the stand. All right, Detective Furman, would you, would you uh, resume the witness stand, please? Detective Furman, uh, was the testimony that you gave at the preliminary hearing in this case completely truthful? I wish to assert my Fifth Amendment privilege. Have you ever falsified a police report? I wish to assert my Fifth Amendment privilege. Is it your intention to assert your Fifth Amendment privilege with respect to all questions that I ask you? Yes. I only have one other question, Your Honor. What was that, Mr. Herman? Uh, Detective Furman, did you plant or manufacture any evidence in this case? I assert my Fifth Amendment privilege. Yeah, that Mark Furman. That was a painful chapter. The reality of it was cops, LAPD cops, catered to celebrities. Yes! Simpson had cops over, swam in his pool, stuff like that. They loved Simpson. Yeah. What motivation in the world would LAPD have to concoct a conspiracy to frame O.J. Simpson? None, zero. I've always said, the trail of blood tells the tale. Yeah. The DNA results, how it was virtually impossible for there to have been conspiracy, right. contamination. Another person, yeah. So I, the, I think the DNA cinched it. That was what cinched it for me, to be honest with you. And then I think back, I'm like, poor Robin Cotton, you know, she was the DNA expert, and I'm thinking, you know, she was so monotone and just had no presence, really. Dr. Robin Cotton was a pedigreed and respected molecular biologist, which is a title that's so complicated, it's even hard for me to pronounce. But she was there to present DNA evidence, and she did it for four days. And they were long, lecture-filled days. DNA was the most damaging and irrefutable evidence against O.J. But Dr. Cotton's testimony was one of the most grueling for the sequestered jury. It was a relatively new technology in 1995, so the prosecution explained it in great detail. Days of details like this. DNA has four basic components. They are referred to as bases, spelled B-A-S-E-S. -E and they have the names adenine, guanine, thymine, and cytosine. As I watched our jury, their eyes glazed over and they just weren't processing it. Yeah. Was the evidence there? Absolutely. It was there, but still there. My biggest concern is that it wouldn't matter. People are just not going to accept that a beloved celebrity like Simpson could do such a horrible thing. 
there were so many good people who fought so hard to make that case go right. It's sad we didn't get the result we should have gotten. When you walked out of that courtroom that day, do you remember what you felt? It was a feeling of numbness. I, it's just, with regard to verdict day, you remember juror number six. You were there when he stood up and did the black power salute. I do. And I remember looking at him thinking, so that's what we were dealing with. Shortly thereafter, the courtroom was pretty much cleared. Uh, and it was after Judge Edel left the bench. But Simpson had an outburst. He did? Yeah. yeah. In the courtroom? Yeah. I was standing closest to the defense side of the table at the time. And Simpson got this kind of enraged look. And he, he was looking back over my shoulder. And I remember he was, he, he looked almost animal-like and spit was coming out of his mouth, and he was saying something so guttural, I, I couldn't even make it out. His own lawyers and then the bailiffs pushed him out the side door to the courtroom. I remember looking at him enraged like that because his eyes were bulging and literally cords in his neck were standing out and spits flying out of his mouth. I'm looking at him and I remember thinking, that's what Ron and Nicole saw just before they died. Kim, there was nothing more than I wanted to be able to bring home justice for your family and for the Brown family. Yeah. And that's where my sense of being wounded comes from. Yeah. And to this day, I think the vast majority of people felt Simpson got away with murder. Yeah. And they were astounded that this happened in the criminal justice system. Right. But there are certain extraordinary trials where it goes beyond evidence, beyond the law. It goes into a, a different realm. On the afternoon of the verdicts, I left you and your dad, and I was in my office, and a couple deputy sheriffs came back, and they had been part of the crew which had bust the sequestered jurors out to a sheriff's facility to rejoin mm -hmm. family and friends. And the deputy sheriffs came in and said, you guys never had a chance. Oh. All the way out there, there was just high-fiving and laughing. And they said, we heard it over and over again, that was payback for Rodney King. And my heart sank. And about five years later, by happenstance, I ran into a white male juror who had been excused from the panel. In almost the exact same words, he said, uh, I, I have to tell you, while we were in sequestration at meals and on downtime, I heard it time and time again, this will be payback for Rodney King. And said, you guys never had a chance from the beginning.
I told you before that I have started to play this new game called Best Fiends, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game on my phone. And I've gone up like 20 some levels since I last talked to you about this. So I think I'm like, I don't know, in the 50s. I think I'm 55, I think is the level that I'm on. But it's super cool because I can solve thousands of fun puzzles. I'm collecting all these cute little characters. I'm still digging the music. I'm just having a ton of fun because there's challenging levels that they just keep getting harder and harder, but you get to use your brain. How often do we get to use that throughout the day? It's a casual game. I can play it alone or with family and friends. My son can play it, but it's really just made for adults. And that is my favorite part. You too can download this free app on the Apple App Store or on Google Play. It's a five-star rated mobile game. And you too can solve thousands of fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. So go right now, go download it. That's friends without the R, best fiends. Again, that's best fiends, friends without the R. This episode is brought to you in part by June's Journey. Picture it, the glamour of the roaring 20s, wrapped in a mystery that only you can solve. Dive into June Parker's captivating quest to uncover scandalous family secrets. With your keen eye for detail, find hidden clues and solve mind-boggling puzzles. It's all about observation, intrigue, and drama. But beware, each clue leads deeper into a thrilling storyline filled with danger and romance. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Your adventure awaits. Kim, we started off with you returning to the courthouse. When was the last time you were at the courthouse? The criminal case verdict was the last time I was there until I was called as a potential juror. Um, Seriously? Yeah. When? It was a good I don't know, five years maybe after the case ended and I got a summons for jury duty um, down at the criminal courts building downtown LA. I was either one floor above or below um, where our case was and I went through the whole process. I got put in the jury box and I just sat there like deer in headlights and then proceeded to have a panic attack for the entire time that I was there. One of the attorneys said, juror number, whatever my juror number was, um, can you please come to the sidebar? And so I got out of the box and went to the sidebar and talked to the judge and the two attorneys. And they said, Miss um, Goldman, are you okay being here? And I said, no, I'm going to vomit. Like, I, I can't be in here. I I'd- can't believe you got that far, frankly. I, I'm happy. I, I would love to sit on a jury. Right. Um, I get it. I think I'd be good at it. Yeah. I would do it honest. Yeah. But- They allowed me to leave because there was no way in heck that I was going to be able to show up to that place every day with a clear mind and a clear heart. And so the judge said that um, they will release me from jury duty and they will take me off the list for downtown L.A. And I said, but please leave me on for other courthouses. And they said, "Um, thank you very much. And I never went back until this day when I walked the halls with Bill Hodgman. So what was that like? It was pretty much the same level of intensity in terms of my uh, anxiety. That was really hard. Um, We went on a day where there weren't a lot of people there, um, but Bill had recently retired. And so it was kind of like a coming home time for him. And so everybody was waving to him. And then I was like totally freaking out because I remembered all the signs and the elevators and I was just having rampant flashbacks. And then we got up to our floor and they had the, the security gates that you have to walk through. And then it was eerie. It was really eerie. The other person we heard Bill talk about was Chris Darden. Yeah, Chris and I are old friends. In fact, I went over to his house to talk about the case recently. 
I'm gonna hop the fence. How do you get in here? <laughs> Hi. This is beautiful, Chris. You're so fancy. You're greeting me with almonds. I'm greeting you with scotch. It's real scotch. Hi, it is real scotch. Hi. How are you? Good. I don't think I've ever been here. Dude, look at you and your wine. Wow. I'm digging the, the porn stash in this picture. It's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. You know, I never got it to work right. <laughs> never got that mustache thing. Hilarious. Hi. He just scolded me for not even staying to say hi. So hi. Hi, hi Marcia. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. Oh my God, you, you smell so good. What Thank is you. that? I don't know. It's something that Keelan got me from LB. How's your <gasps> son? He must He's be great. like 15. Yeah. Basketball star? Yeah, yeah. You're such a great mom on, on the sidelines. Like, God! <laughs> I, I'm obnoxious. I, I mean, I, I can't believe I haven't been kicked out yet. <laughs> These people are like family, like relatives you haven't seen in a long time. And honestly, I'm even more grateful that Chris was willing to talk to me after just recently losing his sister. But it wasn't the first time we bonded over losing a sibling. I'm sorry about Edna. Oh, well, thank you. I remember when your brother, Michael, died. He was 95, right? So we were in the midst of the trial, right? Yeah, he was dying. He was dying, and I remember you and I spoke after he passed away and we were jealous of each other's loss. Like I was jealous that you had time to say goodbye. And I remember you saying to me that you felt so helpless that you just wish it would have gone faster because it was so painful for you to watch your brother. Yeah, and painful for him. Dying of HIV. Yeah. <sighs> not pleasant to watch and clearly not pleasant to experience. Mm. Chris and I were uniquely bonded in that we both buried our brothers within months of each other. They were unfair, tragic deaths. And for Chris, it happened in the midst of the trial, a daily pressure cooker. Yet he was still at court every day fighting for Ron and Nicole. So I remember a lot was made about you being a black prosecutor, being brought into the Simpson case just because you were black. Like, how do, you, how do you feel about that? That must have been frustrating. I was always very protective of the black community. When I became a prosecutor, you know, within a few years, I was a gang prosecutor. As the cases came in of dead black children and dead black women at the hands of gang members, and I thought it was important to prosecute those cases and to help protect the black community. And what was the flack, that you were a black prosecutor going after a black man? I mean, is that what it was that early on? For some people, that was the problem. A lot of people thought it was innocent. So I'm a prosecutor trying to prosecute an innocent man, regardless of his race or mine. So the public has an unfair opinion of you, and the defense took advantage of that. The defense filed a motion to exclude me from being on the prosecution team. The defense said Chris would present a conflict of interest because he investigated Al Collings for aiding a fugitive. Remember, Cowlings was Simpson's friend and the driver of the Bronco in the slow-speed chase. Well, the defense lost the motion, and Chris remained on the case. What went on in that courtroom isn't what goes on in a courtroom necessarily. You think it was an exaggeration? Oh, what? oh absolutely, a total yeah. exaggeration. All, the, all that drama, all those theatrics, most often a judge would have, you know, shut the defense down. A lot of it was way beyond what lawyers do. I, I thought a lot of the conduct was outrageous. Even Chris Darden got sidetracked and defensive when Johnny Cochran started his grandstanding in the courtroom. 
The second voice that you heard sounded like the voice of a black man. Is that correct? Sustained. Sustained. Of course not. Wait, I don't. Wait. This statement about whether somebody sounds black or white is racist, and I resent it, and I think it's totally improper. This is the witness's statement, and if the statement is racist, then he is the racist, not me. Okay. I, I didn't say and clearly, right. well, wait, well, wait. I mean, but that's what you're suggesting, and that's what you know, has created a lot of problems for my family and myself. Statements that you make about me and race, Mr. Cockrell. Well, you should stop doing it to the court. Wait, sorry. wait, I'm going to take a recess right now because I'm so mad at both of you guys. I'm about to hold both of you in contempt. We'll take 15. Instead of it just being a fair fight, the defense made it personal. They made it personal when they dug into Marcia's child custody Marcia. case. And, oh, right. Let's say what? Marcia's your wife. Marcia's my wife. Marcia, Marcia was your work wife. <laughs> Let's not give the National Enquirer any more. <laughs> Back then, I think the National Enquirer and, and the Globe and I think the tabloids had a lot to do with people zeroing in on you and your family and the Brown family and, and even us. All of us really were the victims of a smear campaign. Yeah. Prosecutor Marsha Clark is involved in not one but two battles tonight. Chuck, the lead prosecutor in the Simpson case, is accused of spending too little time with her young children. That claim comes from Marsha Clark's ex-husband in his petition for primary custody. Late last week, Marsha Clark reminded the court of her child care concerns and asked for the cancellation of a surprise late court session. I can't be here. Gordon Clark refers to such problems in his custody petition, saying the Clark boys are starved for affection. Honestly, Chris, I was there with you guys every day. I felt tension between you and the defense, but I also felt some strain between you and Marsha and the rest of the team. Were you guys like on equal footing on making decisions and how things were going to proceed or? Well, if you're second chair, you're second. Okay, so then Marsha had the final say on things, or was Bill still in there on that point? Well, you know, Bill was upstairs. He had a, he still had a hand in things, and uh, Garcetti you know, also had a hand in things. So on important issues, uh, I would say that Garcetti called the shots. Were there times where you disagreed? It was hard to disagree with what we presented because a lot of what we presented, we didn't know we were going to present it until the last minute. Part of the problem with the prosecution of that case is that the prosecution wasn't ready. The forensic evidence had not been completely processed. So as the trial is going on, evidence is coming in from different labs. Investigators are flying around the country taking samples to different DNA labs for DNA analysis. I mean, things like that. Because you shouldn't go to trial unless you're ready. Why did it move along so quickly then? Well, a couple of reasons. You know, once the DA's office and the LAPD made a decision to arrest Simpson, that started the clock, right to a speedy trial. They probably should have waited. Right. What do you think would have happened if they did? They waited a year? Yeah. Uh, they probably have all the evidence analyzed. As lawyers, we'd be able to sit down and know what all of our exhibits are going to be and who all of the experts are going to be. Why do you think there was a rush to arrest him so quickly? I think two reasons. One, because he, it was so high profile. And number two, because he's accused of being a double murderer. So you think the jury was influenced by things that they saw before the trial? In this case, jurors had 
you know, months to read the press, to, to you know, watch television reports. They knew all kinds of things. Of course, they knew all about Simpson. So they knew about Furman before they ever went in there. Furman was out of West LA, and back then, West LA had a reputation for, you know, flying South African flags on their cars during apartheid. Uh, they had a reputation for excluding black officers from assignment there. And I was in a unit that investigated rogue police officers. So I took what we had on Furman upstairs to Marsha Clark. Was there any indication that early that he could potentially be a problem? Yeah. Did you guys think that it would escalate to what it did later on in the trial with the, the tapes and the N-word and all that stuff? Absolutely. I mean, you couldn't not have him testify because he was an integral part of the case, but how do you mitigate knowing that he's gonna be tainted in such a horrible, negative way? When you have to put on a witness and there is this negative information, you ought to bring it out yourself first. Address it, try to manage the issue, show the jury that you're not hiding anything and that you're open and transparent. We didn't do that. You know, we just fed him to the wolves. I know that there were areas that there were mistakes, but I think we were kind of set up to fail the second that Simpson was named as a suspect. Going in and seeing the jury and seeing the defense team and the killer greeting their fans and waving, they were pandering. You know, I think celebrity had a lot to do with it. It was just a strange time in L.A. in 1994 and 1995, two years after Rodney King and the riots. For the city of Los Angeles, a third day of tension and violence. 37 people dead, more than 1,300 injured, more than 4,000 arrested, Damage estimate, $200 million and rising. A few hours ago, the man who's become the unwilling symbol of this outbreak of violence decided it was time to speak out. Rodney King appealed for peace. I just want to say, you know, can we, can we all get along? Can we, can we get along? People have to be willing to make an effort to find out what the truth is. Right. But obviously people have lots of feelings about the glove situation. A pair of bloody gloves was key evidence. One glove was found outside Nicole's condo, the scene of the murders. The other was found at Simpson's home. DNA results from the gloves matched both victims and Simpson. So Chris Darden took a risk, and it could have been a stroke of genius if it had worked. You all know what he did. He had Simpson try on the gloves in front of the jury. Many believe the awkward moment when Simpson tried on the gloves worn by the killer and they appeared not to fit was a devastating turning point for prosecutors. I was there that day. I remember what went down. He bent his fingers. Yeah, he bent his fingers, and I think the rubber glove extended from the bottom gives it the illusion of it not fitting. You know, there's space in the fingertips, but there'd always been space in the fingertips. because He has a huge palm and short fingers. And that's evident also from him wearing the, the same glove on the sidelines at the, the football games. So I thought it would fit, and I thought it did fit. But you got reamed for that. Well, you know, and people, you know, it's all about perception. Right. And, you know, and one has to be mindful of how the jury will perceive things. Right. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Is that an area that you look back and think, shit, I wish I wouldn't have done that? Well, I wish I hadn't done it because it didn't, it didn't move the ball. 
<laughs> you know? <laughs> Gain any yardage it on it. It did not. <laughs> it did not. Uh, should have, but it did not. Could have, but it, it did not. The other part that people always have a question about is why the Bronco Chase didn't get entered into evidence. So Tom Ling told me, A, everybody already knew about it, and B, there were times where he talked about his love for Nicole, and there was a concern that if the jury heard that, that would be in his favor. And the thing about that is, the audio is hearsay. You know, the question is whether or not, if you play the video, there's a question of whether the jury should ever have heard the audio. Those are the kinds of things that if you take your time, right. instead of running into a courtroom and filing charges, you work through those things, those issues, and figure out whether or not this is something you want to do or ought to do. You know, I watched the Bronco Chase on television, and uh, I went to the gym the next morning, and no one was in the gym. Days later, they all said that they were exhausted from watching the Bronco Chase. People developed an emotional attachment to the case, and even to OJ. People began choosing up sides that day. The Bronco Chase was never entered into evidence and some of the key witnesses were never heard from. I mean, there was Jill Shively. Almost ran into OJ, literally leaving the scene of the crime. There was an issue with whether or not she received money from the tabloids or whether she was upfront about it. And maybe we should have put her on. Huh. Marcia says the opposite. Selling her story was losing her credibility. The fact of the matter is, is long before she ever took any money, she was saying that these events happened. Maybe we should have just left everything on, on the floor, as they say. Right. For the jury and for the world to make their own decisions. After the case, why did you leave the DA's office? Well, you know, I was teaching at Southwestern. I was thinking about taking a leave of absence. Someone called me on the phone and said, hey, you know, read the Daily Journal, the legal newspaper. You've been terminated. <gasps> Two days later, I got a letter from the DA's office that said in handwriting that uh, was written, have a good life. It's something I'm very angry about, even today, and very bitter about. I mean, that's horrible. Yeah, it is horrible. You know, and I didn't fight it, and I probably should have fought it. And it happened to Marsha, too, right? Didn't she, did she quit, or did she get fired, too? I think she was terminated the same way, also. 25 years later, do you still carry guilt with you? I wouldn't say that I, I carry guilt. I feel like I certainly have a debt to pay to your family and, and to the Brown family because I contributed to you all not getting the justice that you deserve. I know how hard you took that loss and that is painful for me because I have been thankful and grateful for 20 some odd years of what you put yourself through and what sacrifices you made and what you had to endure because you were on the right side of the truth and you were on the right side of justice. and. My brother and Nicole didn't have anybody else advocating for them. And I will never, ever place blame on you and anyone in the district attorney's office for that case having the outcome that it did. Well, that's, that's very kind of you. It is. And helpful. And I appreciate it. I'm grateful that you and your family feel that way. After the verdict, we did a press conference. And I remember you falling over with emotion. And I can't get that image out of my head because I know how hard you took that loss. That day, after the verdict, I went to my office and I sat down in a chair and someone came and said, Garcetti wants you uh, at the podium. And I said, no, 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 no. I'm too, too emotional, I'm too upset, I can't do it. 
And someone comes back in and says, McCarthy well, says he wants you there now anyway. So I went. Uh, I shouldn't have gone. Why, Chris? Because, you know, um, it's my first time I really get to grieve for, for Rod and Nicole. You prosecute a case like that, and you look into their lives and meet their family, you know, and they become very real. And you develop a connection to them. To lose that opportunity for justice, it's personal. I let them down. There's a possibility that I want to confront the killer in Las Vegas. What do you think about that? Just be ready. Ready for what? Mentally. I think your head and your heart and your spirit has to be in the right place to deal with that. Yeah. When the question is, what do you expect him to say? I'm sorry, you're not gonna get that. I did it, you're not gonna get that. I, I know he has a tremendous amount of disgust and disdain for my dad and I, and I'm totally fine with that. I think that if I could just stand tall and not cower, that would mean something. Okay. But I don't think you're going to get from him what you want, unless you just want an opportunity to call him a motherfucker to his face. Yeah. Because, you know, what's the point of confronting a guy if you don't get a chance to bitch slap him? I know. DoorDash is a hot commodity in my house. Uh, it was brought to my attention by my son, who was always needing to feed his very hungry appetite, and I just couldn't keep up with him. So it's super easy because it connected him to our favorite restaurant, and then it would just magically appear at our door. So ordering is super easy. You just use the DoorDash app and choose what you want to eat, and the Dash shirt will bring it to you anywhere you are. Not only is that burger place that you love on DoorDash already, but over 310,000 other amazing restaurants are there too. DoorDash connects you with door-to-door delivery in over 3,300 cities, all 50 states, and Canada. You can order from your local go-tos or choose from your favorite places like Wendy's, Chick-fil-A, my favorite's Cheesecake Factory. Don't worry about dinner. Let dinner come to you with DoorDash. Right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter the promo code CONFRONTING. That's $5 off your order when you download the DoorDash app from the App Store and enter promo code CONFRONTING. Again, that's promo code CONFRONTING for $5 off your first order from DoorDash. So, Kim, it's interesting because Bill Hodgman was supposed to be running the case, and then he got sick. Mm -hmm. And maybe it was because of that that Chris Darden thought they weren't ready. But Bill Hodgman said they were ready to go to trial. That was what was interesting to me, um, to listen to the prosecutors talk and have a different perception of where they were at in the case and how strong they all felt the case was or was not. You know, it's funny. They were in the courtroom together, but when you talk to them all these years later, it could have been that they were working on two completely different trials. I mean, Marcia said they did everything the right way, and Chris seems to have a lot more regret, don't you think? You know, after we talked to Marsha, I think we felt like maybe that was her coping mechanism. That was the way that she dealt with it. And I think this is Chris's way of dealing with it. Chris is much more open. He's much more willing to turn the mirror inside and kind of figure out where they could have done things differently. And I think 
Marsha's very protective of her decision and Chris is at a place where he's a little bit more willing to be open about his decisions and maybe admit that maybe they weren't the best. And Bill is kind of teetering in the middle. We're all human. Yeah. Didn't Chris tell you that Johnny Cochran actually referred cases to him? Yeah. After the trial. Yeah. Johnny and Chris had an interesting relationship during the trial. They were friends. I think Chris referred to him as his mentor and really looked up to him and thought he was a Before the trial? Yeah, that he was. I mean, Johnny Cochran is a very well-respected attorney. He was a prosecutor at one point. He was very well-known in the district attorney's office and Judge Ito loved him. I think throughout that case, uh, things shifted a lot. And I know Chris's feelings about him shifted a lot. And so Johnny Cochran throwing him a case or two was uh, a little petty, in my view, like throwing pity cases at him. That's the way I took it, but Chris is a bigger person than I am. Yeah, you're right, Kim. I mean, it could be pity, but it also could be guilt, you know. I mean, Johnny took the guy he mentored, and he publicly eviscerated him. But, you know, whatever the case is, we're never going to know, because Johnny passed away at the age of 67, 10 years after the trial. That's one person we won't get to confront. On the next episode of Confronting O.J. Simpson. You know, the jury really gave the middle finger to justice. Outside the courthouse, it was mayhem. It was in many ways the original reality TV. There were people talking T-shirts and Judge Ito Jello molds. And then they were selling a watch with the police chasing the Bronco. Lionel Cryer looked at the defense and he gave the signal. <gasps> and I was like, oh my God. I don't even view it as controversial. I don't just think he did it. I know he did it. Can't wait for the next episode of Confronting O.J. Simpson. Listen to episode five right now and ad-free when you sign up for Wondery Plus at wondery.com slash plus. That's W-O-N-D-E-R-Y dot com slash P-L-U-S to hear episode five of Confronting O.J. Simpson. Want to know more about the Confronting Podcast? Please follow us at at Confronting Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for photos, additional content, and discussions about the podcast. We are all confronting something, and I look forward to continuing the discussions from our episodes over social media with all of you. If you enjoyed this one, please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever platform you listen to podcasts. Thank you for going on this journey with me. Confronting O.J. Simpson is executive produced by me, Kim Goldman, and my co-host, Nancy Glass, along with executive producers Ben Fetterman and Andrea Gunning, supervising producer Carrie Hartman, produced by Julie Clark and Chris O'Ryan, story producer Tony Davis. Audio editing done by lead editor Matt Delvecchio and editor Dean Welsh. The archive, research, and production team includes Jamie Richard, Megan Paisley, Jessica Little, and Brianna Fars. Other members of the production team include Kenny Kohler and Mark Downing. Bart McCatchy was the post-supervising producer. Audio mix done by Dave Saya, assisted by Dale Epperson. Music and original composition created by Mybit Music. And special thanks to Laurent Joven at Migrate Sound. Confronting O.J. Simpson was produced by Glass Entertainment Group in partnership with Wondery. Some material, including court testimony, was edited for time. 
I'm Elena, an autopsy technician. And I'm Ash, a hairstylist. And we just love swapping stories about all of the morbid things that fascinate us. And if you do too, join us on our podcast, Morbid. It's a safe space to let your weirdo flag fly. On Morbid, we cover dark historical events, sinister science, unnerving paranormal events, and sordid high society murders. We also dive deep into the most notorious crimes in history. Our podcast is grounded in rigorous and painstaking research. We're also not afraid to read a (laughs) We keep it weird because a dash of snark is necessary to get through grotesque true tales of demented minds. So follow Morbid on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Morbid early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.